Hello and welcome to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Researched and written in Indianapolis by Dr. Adrian Peterson and produced in the studios of WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. I'm Jeff White. This is edition NWS 593 for release on Sunday, July 5th, 2020. On WaveScan today, two or three clandestine radio stations in Vanuatu, a kerosene-powered radio receiver, and our Japan DX report from Yukiko Tsuji. On two separate occasions, there was a movement for total independence on the part of some areas within the British-French condominium of New Hebrides, or Vanuatu, as it is known these days. Back towards the end of the 1800s, a small enclave on the main island of Ifate exerted its own independence for a few months, and then more recently, just some 40 years ago, the island of Espiritu Santo made an attempt at independence. Here's Ray Robinson with our story. Thanks, Jeff. The first attempt at independence occurred in the Port Vila area on the island of Efate in the year 1889, when the 550 local residents, natives, French and English, set up their own separate community with a president, a colourful flag and government leadership. But less than a year later, the erstwhile nation of Franceville was no more, and the town instead is now known as Port Vila. The second attempt at some form of independence in the New Hebrides, or Vanuatu, occurred some 40 to 50 years ago on the largest island in the chain, Espiritu Santo. At the time, independence movements were underway for all of the New Hebrides archipelagos, but the inhabitants on Santo were upset by the political manoeuvring prior to colonial independence that was leading to the new central government. A new village, Tanafo, was established a few miles out from Luganville on Santo Island, and this became the headquarters for the secession movement. The green headquarters building, now abandoned, has become somewhat of a tourist attraction for visitors to Santo. Two or three clandestine broadcasting stations were established in the New Hebrides during the National Independence Era, and the first of these was installed in the head office building at Tanafo. Known as Radio Tanafo, this new, though low-powered, shortwave station was inaugurated in January 1976. Radio Tanafo was first noted further abroad by the well-known international radio monitor in New Zealand, Arthur Cushion, on January 20, 1976. Programming was music and speech in the Bislama, a Creole language, which has since become the national language of Vanuatu. Plans were announced at the time for the possibility of some future programming in both French and English. The original transmitter was listed at just 60 watts, though with a saltwater pathway in all directions, coverage throughout the New Hebrides was generally quite reasonable. In the evenings, the station could be heard quite regularly in both New Zealand and Australia. This transmitter was donated to the Tanafo political organisation Nagri Armel by an American resident, Michael Oliver. The new radio Tanafo jumped around a bit on the shortwave dial, usually somewhere in the 3 MHz or 90 meter tropical band, though one other observed channel was 7125 kHz. Soon afterwards, an additional shortwave transmitter was obtained, and this was installed also in the same Tanafo building. For somewhere around four years, this radio Tanafo was generally on the air, though somewhat irregularly. 
And then in 1979, with the increase of political tensions, Radio Tanafo became Radio Vemarana, a new station with in some ways a new set of equipment. And this time the station moved around from place to place to avoid capture, though generally in the same areas of the same island as Spiritu Santo. The, shall we say, new transmitter was an old marine transceiver rated at 350 watts. There was another clandestine radio transmitter on the air in the New Hebrides around the same time, and this one was identified as Radio Vanua Aku. This station operated on 3,004 kHz, and it was said to be located on one of the islands somewhere, perhaps moving from island to island. The technical equipment for this station was flown in from a nearby country, and it was passed successfully through customs. The new Radio Vanua Aku was supporting the Vanua Aku political party, of which Walter Linney was the head. There are no known international loggings of this particular low-powered shortwave station. With Independence Day for the New Hebrides drawing near in the summer of 1980, army troops from Papua New Guinea were called in to quell the rebellion on Santo, and there was a brief skirmish known locally as the Coconut War. The New Hebrides were granted independence on July 30th, 1980. Just one week after Independence Day on August 6th, 1980, an Australian aeroplane with direction-finding equipment aboard arrived at Port Vila on the capital city island, Efate. Three days later, the plane began flights over various islands of Vanuatu in an attempt to locate the two clandestine radio stations, Radio Tanafo Vemarana and Radio Vanua Aku. A British team at the Kumul Force headquarters in the police station near the Bowerfield Airport was already on the air with a 60-watt transmitter jamming the signal from the clandestine Radio Tanafo Vemarana. The last occasion when this station was heard in New Zealand was August the 14th, 1980. The Australian plane made many flights in an attempt to locate the signals from the two clandestine radio stations, but apparently without success. In any case, the army contingent from Papua New Guinea found both stations and closed them four days later on August the 18th. The newly elected Prime Minister, Walter Linney, no longer needed his Radio Vanua Aku. He now had access to the official government station, Radio Vila. Thank you very much, Ray Robinson at KVOH in Los Angeles. Well, Ben Cobb and Christopher Rumbaugh have told us about an application for a new shortwave station in the United States. It would apparently be an all-DRM station, that is, Digital Radio Mondial Modulation, rather than standard AM-type modulation. The applicant is Parable Broadcasting Company, based in Norfolk, Virginia, but the transmitter site would be in Batavia, Illinois, in the Midwestern United States. The requested call letters are WPBC, for Parable Broadcasting Company. The station is slated to have two 10-kilowatt DRM transmitters and one TCI-brand super-high-power log-periodic antenna. The U.S. Federal Communications Commission requires shortwave stations to use at least 50 kilowatts, but they can use as little as 10 kilowatts in DRM mode. Stephen Bartlett, president of PBC, says the station's principal business will be broadcasting religious and educational programming and data services from third parties, specifically beamed to Europe. 
The technical details of their license application were prepared by Stephen Lockwood of the well-known engineering consulting firm of Hatfield & Dawson. Incidentally, there was another application for a DRM-only shortwave station to be located on the east coast of the United States a few years ago, also transmitting to Europe, but it appears that nothing happened with those plans. And now that kerosene-powered radio receiver. Yes, that's correct. There really was a radio receiver that was powered by the flame from a kerosene lamp. Here's Ray again with the story. During the month of May 2020, there was a series of messages exchanged on the internet regarding the possibility of operating a radio receiver powered by a kerosene lamp. The question was asked, is this a true story, or is it just a figment of wild imagination? The answer is that, yes, there really was a kerosene-operated radio receiver, and it was manufactured and sold commercially. Back in the middle of the last century, kerosene refrigerators were available in South America and in Australia, where electrical power in rural areas was not available. These kerosene refrigerators operated with a burning kerosene flame. They cooled down the contents of the refrigerator, though nothing was cold enough to be frozen. The well-known American international radio monitor Don Moore states that he was familiar with the kerosene refrigerator during the era when he was serving as a Peace Corps volunteer in Honduras in the 1980s. They were occasionally in use in small country stores. Similar consideration back in the middle of the last century was given to what is known as Peltier cooling, that is, the passing of a direct electrical current through a series of dissimilar metal junctions that produce a reduction in temperature. This cascade effect does indeed produce a reduction in temperature, but it's insufficient for refrigeration. Back in the era after World War II, a radio receiver was manufactured in Moscow, specifically for use in rural areas of Russia and also in Middle Eastern countries. This unique world band radio was also in use in country areas of Siberia and China. One of the major purposes for the production of this unique Russian-made radio receiver was so that different peoples living in many widely scattered areas could tune in to the programming from Radio Moscow. An electrical current for the radio receiver is produced when a group of metal junctions is heated by the flame in a kerosene lamp. This mild current is sufficient to heat the filament in the radio valves and to power a vibrator with an output of 90 volts. A quart of kerosene would power the radio for a dozen hours or more. The Russian kerosene radio receiver contains seven tubes, with four switchable bands running from the European longwave band, 175 kHz, up to 12.3 MHz shortwave. The powerful 5-inch loudspeaker with push-pull audio can tune distant radio stations, long-wave, medium-wave and short-wave, at a good room-filling volume. The radio receiver is housed in an attractive commercially made table model cabinet and it features two pairs of concentric rotatable knobs. The two concentric knobs on the left are for tone and volume and the two concentric knobs on the right are for tuning and band switching. A separate vibrator with power cables and a voltmeter are attached externally to the console receiver. This radio could also be run with suitable sized batteries and also from local electricity if it was available. There was also a headphone jack, thus enabling private listening. The radio receiver weighed 20 pounds and it was sold at a subsidized price for approximately 45 US dollars. 
the unique kerosene radio captured the interest of people in the United States. The August 1958 issue of Radio and TV News featured a full-page story on the Russian kerosene radio, together with three large photos of the receiver and its associated equipment. Radio authorities in the United States also showed an interest in this unique radio receiver. One particular radio company in Baltimore, Maryland, procured one of these Russian-made kerosene radios and studied it for its possible wider usage. The Russian-made kerosene radio was not the first in using high heat to power a radio receiver. Similar experiments were conducted in England in the middle of the last century, but they were abandoned as being too clumsy and too unreliable. The equally well-known Horatio A. Negro in Uruguay states that the Russian-made kerosene radios were imported into some areas of South America during the 1950s, and then in the 1960s a small quantity were assembled in Uruguay itself. However, as he concludes, they are today no more than an unusual curiosity. Back to you, Jeff. Thank you very much, Ray. Recently on Wayscan, I was talking with Jerry Plummer, Frequency Manager at WWCR in Nashville, Tennessee, about day four of the High Frequency Coordination Conference that took place in Malaysia in February of this year. We were actually talking about the group dinner at HFCC A20. So that was uh, the discussion uh, at our table. Uh, I don't know uh, if you had interesting yeah, conversations. Yeah, we had. Um, uh, and one of the good things about having meetings and gatherings like that is you get with us as you get uh, just totally different groups of people mm-hmm. together you know uh, I was with the uh, British and the French and the Russians and the um, uh, Germans uh-huh. you know the, as a group and they were talking about many varied odds and ends things and I was kind of you know being sort of a history buff I was thinking man you think about this 50 60 years ago these were all big enemies of each other you know mm, yeah in totally opposite sides of the fence yeah. but getting the people together to talk uh and and, my, and a lot of times that just like you we talked about business you were talking mm-hmm. with ken about the b21 mm-hmm. so you know mm-hmm. yeah that's one of the best things you get out of this mm-hmm. is is talking to people like they get to learn more about them and it, it makes it easier to negotiate when you kind of know and things. there was a there was a group of folks uh from the uh arab countries uh, yeah who were at, at a table there and of course the conversation there was in arabic so. oh yeah 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 <laughs> but discussing Things of mutual interest. Yeah, I, I was at the table right next to him, and it was yeah primarily Arabic, but it also had some bro- uh, English pieces in there, uh-huh. and I could see, I could tell some of the things they were talking about is radio related. And as a matter of fact, uh, they left about the same time most of those guys did, and I just happened to be out on the way out. And uh, again, talking about camaraderie, every one of them individually, as I come walking by, I shook my hand, said, "This was great. We appreciate <laughs> you guys putting it together." And, that's a good thing to get people from all these different groups uh, working together but that's what we're Mm -hmm. supposed to do Mm -hmm. you know I believe yeah it was a shortwave transmitter manufacturer uh, Continental Electronics that that put the whole thing together I think it sponsored it sure did yeah Yeah. Continental Electronics Mm -hmm. Uh, so they were in the picture too so it was it was radio shortwave driven (laughs) from start to finish but what did you call those little potatoes? Papas arrugadas con mojo. No wonder I didn't remember, right? But it's, it's unique to the islands. The these, Canary Islands, yeah, yeah, yeah. part of Spain, uh, but they're right off the coast of Africa, and they're little, little tiny potatoes 
Uh, oh, they're small. They're and, real small. And you dip them in this uh, mojo sauce, they call it, a little spicy sauce. And, uh, um, yeah, it's typical of the thought, Canary Islands. I thought they were good. Mm -hmm. I was... Uh, uh, I was trying to determine what that sauce was because I, I really couldn't identify. I'm not identify quite it. sure. Uh, I couldn't yeah. identify. I, it was good, but I couldn't identify it. Yeah. You know, but they call it mojo sauce. Yeah, I've seen some different colored kinds of mojo sauce, uh, but I think it's all in some Sign spicy kind of this, yeah. thing. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's uh, interesting that, <laughs> that, that that worked out. Yeah. Uh, and also, you know, uh, at each one of these things, we we open with the opening plenary. And then we, of course, have a closing plenary. And Which is what's happening today. Right. That's yeah. typically on Thursday afternoon mm -hmm. where we, I guess, kind of summate the week, what went on, and then build plans for the future. But I right. think you've, you've got uh, some good news to report in terms of the next three conferences are pretty much tied down. Yeah, we have um, our next uh global, or, or not global, but next uh, coordination conference, shortwave mm -hmm. coordination conference, HSCC, will be in uh, August of this year in Bulgaria. Right. Uh, and Sofia. Uh-huh. And then in, um, uh, let's see, January, February, February, the beginning of February of 2021, we have the uh, conference uh, sponsored by the ASBU, Arab States Broadcasting Union, in uh, and, Tunisia. That's right. Mm -hmm. And it's possible we may be one of the first to stay in the brand-new hotel that they're building. That's right. The ASBU, uh, Arab States Broadcasting Union, has a headquarters building, and then right in front of the building, they're building an ASBU hotel. Which, uh, uh, is it right going to be right in front of the Right it's, at it's, right yeah, where it is? it's right beside yeah. it. We saw it under construction before. Um, a year or two before, and uh, it should be open by then. So maybe. Uh, Got any idea how big it is? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but I heard it was going to be a franchise of uh, uh, one of the major international chains, and I forget uh, which one now. Well, you know, when we were there about a year ago, uh, they'd like to hold classes to train people in various forms of communication, and they come from all over the Arab states. So, I mean, kind of got a built in. Place to stay. Oh, yeah, place to mm -hmm. stay right there. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's possible we may be one of the first to stay in that next year. I think so. Uh, and, yeah. and then, of course, after that, uh, the third of the three is uh, B21 That's right. in Australia. That's Yeah, that'll be the second, second time. Second time yeah, in right, the history right. of uh, HFCC. Because you've never yeah. been there before on HFCC, I don't think, have you? No, uh, just the last 2015 just a, meeting right, right, right. In, in Brisbane. Uh, uh, that was good. Now, this time it's... What do you say, Gold, Gold Coast, which I think is down below Brisbane. A little bit, yeah. yeah right. Mm -hmm. Jerry Plummer of WWCR and I were talking at the HFCC A20 Frequency Coordination Conference in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, in February of this year. We'll continue with that conversation on an upcoming WaveScan. Now let's go to Yukiko Tsuji in Tokyo with her DX report. Hello and welcome to the DX Report of the Month from Japan Shortwave Club, aided by Toshi Otake and Amyuki Kutsuji. We have several DX reports from our club members this week. VOA via Philippines was heard on 11700 kHz on June 7th from 11.35 to the sign-off at 11.59 UTC in English. SIO rating was 3.53. Learning English with science news Words and their stories were broadcast. FIBA Radio via Tashkent, Uzbekistan, was heard on 
9390 kilohertz on June 9th from 1500 with interval signal to the sign off at 1530 UTC in Bengali. SIO rating was 343. Talk program was aired mainly. Address was read at 1529. Radio Kuwait was received on 17760 kilohertz on June 4th from 1100 to 1120 UTC in Filipino language. SIO rating was 353. News was broadcast at 1100, followed by talk program with Arabic songs at 1104. Vatican radio was heard on 15595 kHz on June 6 from 1540 to the sign off at 1600 UTC in Arabic. SIO rating was 252. Talk program and hymn were on the air. Radio Dobanga, via Bulgaria, was heard on 11640 kHz on June 2nd from the sign on at 1529 to 1550 UTC in Arabic. SIO rating was 242. It signed on with talk, then a jingle was heard, followed by interview and talk program. Bible Voice Broadcasting via Nauen, Germany, was heard on 9635 kHz on June 7th from the sign on at 1830 to 1900 UTC in English. SIO rating was 252. ID was given at 1830, then Voice of Truth started. BBC via Ascension was heard on 11810 kHz on June 3rd from 1830 to 1930 UTC in English. SIO rating was 353. News was aired followed by Sports Today at 1832, World News at 1900, and Focus on Africa at 1906. The Overcomer Ministry via WRMI Okeechobee, USA was heard on 7570 kHz on June 12th from 1028 to 1101 UTC in English. SIO rating was 353. Religious program was on the air. ID was given at 1059. Radio Havana Cuba was heard on 13740 kHz on May 28th from 1258 to 1310 UTC in Spanish. SIO rating was 352. Bridge music was heard at 1258. Then ID was given. Followed by a talk program by a female announcer. Radio Aparecida Brazil was heard on 6135.1 kHz on June 11th from 0950 to 1005 UTC in Portuguese. SIO rating was 252. Talk program and local pop music were broadcast. ID and jingle were given at 1000. Finally, Japan Shortwave Club will issue the QSL cards for the correct reports on our segment of WaveScan program. We are issuing QSL card by email to the report sent by email. Our address for your email report is jswcqsl at live.jp. I repeat, jswcqsl at live.jp. We continue to issue the printed QSO card by the same system as before. Your report should be addressed to JSWC, 
P.O. Box 44 Kamakura, which is K A M A K U R A, postal code 248-8691, Japan. One ILC or two U.S. dollars for return postage will be appreciated. For this edition of DX Report, we'd like to thank Mr. Yoshiaki Hayashi, Mr. Iwao Nagatani, Mr. Tetsuya Toriumi, Mr. Chiaki Shimada, and Mr. Kazuaki Oikawa for sharing the information with us. Thank you for listening and please join us for our next edition of DX Report of Japan Showtime Club. I'm Yukiko Tsuji in Tokyo. Thank you, Yukiko. Our editor, Adrian Peterson, sends us a report from Omar Kvik in Sweden who says the recent reports about Socotra and Goth Island were especially interesting in last week's WaveScan. I contacted my old friend Derek Goff, who came to Sweden to live here many years ago. He will soon be 87. I sent him your text about Goff Island. He told me that he actually visited this remote island in the early 1950s. Derek Goff, SM5RN, was the radio operator on a ship on its way to South America, from South Africa, when he heard a distress call from Goff Island. Where a man needed medical treatment. Since they were near the island, some of the men, including Derek, took the longboat and went to see the man. He was taken to the ship for some elementary medical treatment and then returned to the island. Well, that's a story about Derek Goff's visit to Goff Island as a young British radio operator. Thank you, Ulmark Vik in Sweden, for that interesting story. And I want to acknowledge a reception report from another Russian listener of WaveScan. We seem to have lots of them.、Uh, this is from Dmitry Kutsov in Ryazan in Russia. And he sent us a report of WaveScan at 1530 UTC on 15670 kilohertz with a good Zinpo of 45444. He heard our Australian DX report. And he's using a Texan PL660 receiver. And we end today with some music from Radio Vanuatu. Thanks for listening to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio, researched and written in Indianapolis by Adrian Peterson. Next week, unusual shortwave stations in Paraguay, more from the HFCC in Malaysia, and our Philippine DX report as well. Several QSO cards are available for WaveScan. Send your AWR and KSDA reception reports for this program to the AWR address in Thailand, I'll give you in a moment. And also to the station your radio is tuned to, WRMI or WWCR or KVOH or Voice of Hope Africa, or to IRRS Italy, or to the AWR relay stations that carry WaveScan. Remember, too, you can send a reception report to the DX reporters when their segment is on the air here in the program as well. They will also verify with their own colorful QSL card. Return postage and an address label are always appreciated. The email address for AWR QSLs is qsl at awr.org. The postal address for AWR QSLs is Adventist World Radio, P.O. Box 
Prakanong. That's P-R-A-K-A-N-O-N-G. Bangkok, 10110, Thailand. Again, that's Adventist World Radio, P.O. Box 234, Prakanong, Bangkok, 10110, Thailand. And the email address for correspondence uh, to WaveScan other than reception reports is wavescan at awr.org. I'm Jeff White at WRMI in Okeechobee, Florida, USA. Till next week, good listening, everyone.